I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you for listening, uh, and thank you especially to any of you who've had a chance sometime this week to recommend the show to a friend. Just let someone in your life know that he might like this show, or she. I know <laughs> maybe mostly men listening, but uh, but there are some women, and we and we uh, we welcome we welcome uh, uh, everybody. Uh, thanks also to those of you who have subscribed to the Slee Ricketts Secret Show. If you have not, uh, go to sleerickets.substack.com and you can you can get a free week's trial just to see what you think. But uh, there are more shows coming out all the time. There's some 25, six, I can't remember how many are up there now, but uh, it's a lot of fun and it is where some of the juicier, gossipier stuff <laughs> the show ends up coming out today's a this is not another inside out episode but it has been i taught my first class of this course uh tonight and it's been a very long day and so rather than going through the entire uh tape for today's episode and figuring out ahead of time how i was going to break it up i just edited the first hour and so it's got a lot of stuff in it i was initially planning to leave out of the show and certainly out of the main feed but i figure you know it may be about time to to clear the air about a couple things so (laughs) it's yet another uh, highly ill-advised episode most importantly and most excitingly however alice is back miss alice allen nasty alice as she uh as she tells us she was she was not known as a schoolgirl, but always aspired to be. As a schoolgirl, school she was nice Alice, and a different Alice in her class was nasty Alice. But she tells us now she's she wants to claim the mantle of nasty Alice. So welcome back to nasty Alice. We are so happy to have her here. She and I spent a, a wonderful long evening talking about Horace, the first century BC Roman poet. In this conversation, we, we also talk about some contemporary Australian poetry and my extremely but inadvertently offensive theory about it as well as some publishing world gossip and a little bit of other stuff but uh, there's a whole lot more of our conversation yet to come i will probably put that out on the secret show in the next week or two it may be actually two more installments because it's, it's just a lot of stuff but i hope you enjoy it i certainly did and really glad to have alice back with us and uh got more more alice coming soon uh i'm tired as fuck so you made a comment on some thread at some point a while ago about you you said some version of this on on like on an episode of poetry says and then we talked about it a little bit off mic but you you talked about basically like there are no non-embarrassing sex poems and like <laughs> like like maybe like the more specific version of that was like there there are definitely plenty of good poems that that talk about sex in one way or another but that it seems to be the case that like when a major part of the point of the poem is to convey sexiness mm. that that is is almost invariably embarrassing yeah i think so I think that's right. I think I and still I th- agree with that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, and, and I've been thinking about like why that might be. I still don't, I don't have any kind of good unified theory. I think like part of the reason might be that like 
there are lots of ways to get people hot and bothered and poetry may just not be one of them like it just, just may not be right, right. there's yeah. like other there's so many other good ways to do that this is this yeah. is not what that what poetry is great at but yeah. what, what is true in a like a non-sexually like in a non-literal you know in a way that has nothing to do with actual sex is that there is a an effect i experience in reading poems of like there are there are definitely poems i read that i just admire or i just am kind of amazed by but there's a certain kind of poem it tends to be more often with poems that are at least like within spitting distance of my kind of if not like my facility for poems then at least like my the the neighborhood in which i do theoretically write poems sometimes like it's got to be somewhat close to you know it's got to be like in the realm of enviable uh which as you said is like has to be close enough to be like for you to you can't envy something that you could never even imagine writing um but i think like is, there's a certain kind of poetry that when i read it it gets me not sexually hot and bothered but like it makes me like horny to write poems. Like it, it gives me like a feeling of like, it's not even that I always want to like do what the poet's doing, but like it, it stirs that feeling in me and it makes me wonder, and this is a probably weird question to ask given that you interview poets every other week and you read a ton of contemporary poetry, but like, is there poetry you've been reading lately that has gotten you stirred up in that way? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. I, I'm reading a whole bunch of first books to judge this, help judge this prize. Oh, right, 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 yeah. And um, it's been so instructive. It's like an education in itself. I'm really lucky because my experience is totally different to what you went through. Mm. I have 22 odd books to read and I okay. had, I don't know, three plus months to read all of them. Mm. So it feels like a luxurious amount of time. And that's just to come up with the short list. But yeah a lot of them i'm reading and i i'm just like this person has no control of the line this person's mm. project is not living up to the skill the craft is not living up to their project um this person is assuming that i'm going to be interested in their subject and giving me no reason to get there with them but then i read this book, which is also a first book by uh, an Australian poet called Belinda Rule, who is in the writing group that I'm in with Jen Compton. And every single poem in that book, it's called Hyperbole, <laughs> is just, it's just mind-blowingly great. Like there's just, there is, and I know that you've said before, like it's, a, it's great if you get through a first book with like one or two that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, she doesn't put a foot wrong and oh, wow. she's doing this work that is like, it's really difficult to write about the subjects that she is writing about. Um, and I just read it and I thought, yeah, that, that's it. That's the thing. Okay. That's what I want to go for. It's the same feeling I have when I read any of Pam Brown's work. Um, Ken Bolton is the same. He's a friend of Pam's. Uh, it was opening up my John Forbes last night, you know, same thing. It's mm -hmm. just like, that's what I want. And you can forget that it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can get so depressed. I mean, I loved your conversation with Jonathan. I had nothing smart to say about it, just that I loved it. Um, but I really understood what he was saying about like, I just want to take a break, yeah. go read some of the baseline things and remind myself why I like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
but so but so then maybe there is like some of this stuff is making you itch a little bit in that way yeah but i'm i'm kind of in the same place that jonathan described not that i can compare myself to him but like yeah i'm, I'm reading this book by belinda and i'm just like yeah fuck you're really you're really crushing it and maybe one day i might be able to go for that again but yeah it just feels like this endless stasis for me hmm. um i'm not worried about it yeah 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 no i mean and, and i think like that's very much the way like louise glick talks about like she right she spends the majority of her time not writing and like most right. of her books she seems to like not write for years and then suddenly write a book in six weeks yeah um which i can't imagine it's yeah, gonna be like can, that <laughs> I, yeah i was gonna say it sounds pretty good yeah uh, yeah all right. But I, you've I, been getting back into it, it sounds like, which is good. Yeah, I, I've been, well, I've been uh, doing some revision, you know, calling a big set of stuff that I had and was letting sit for a while and then, mm. you know, cutting the 90% of it that I throw away and looking at what's left and seeing if some of that I might send out at some point. Mm. Can I ask how you're feeling about the book and the fact that it is sort of still waiting there because it kind of feels to me like this book is starting to take on a life beyond what the publisher will allow <laughs> like I, mean, I feel like i know it pretty well by now right. other people have read the <laughs> yeah. poems and it's like yeah. this book uh, wants to come out yeah i feel like everybody who might have bought a copy i will have sent a pdf to at the, like, at some ah, point. we'll still buy one um, we'll still yeah, buy yeah, one yeah well, uh i don't know so i've been sort of dying to talk about this on the podcast i don't know how yeah much but i imagine it's yet. tricky yeah. yeah i would be very surprised at this point if the press that accepted it that it won the prize from i would be very surprised if they published it matthew yeah, yeah, yeah. seriously I, I think that's very unlikely right now uh what seems I they're i mean they're all but defunct like I, oh. again why what i could also see happening is somehow they get an infusion of money something changes somebody else gets hired a few years down the road and suddenly it kicks back up again but even then i will have been you know it's like what happened with the swanee review where you know my friend eric works there and is and God bless him and God bless the work he's done. And he was very, you know, thrilled to get the job he did. And he got the job he did under the current editor. However, when the current editor came in, he retroactively unaccepted all of the poems the magazine had accepted. So Fucking like that hell. thing, that kind of thing does happen from time to time with, I know, I think the, um, I think the Boston Review might have done something like, oh, Paris Review did something like that when their new editor came in. And I think like the Boston Review and the Nation have done similar things at times. So I would not be surprised if they end up re-existing later, but I don't think they're going to publish this. Book. So Dude. I have, <laughs> like I've gotten email, emails from a number of listeners who've said like, oh, well, you, you've won a couple of book prizes. Like, what are your thoughts on these book prizes that I'm, you know, planning to enter this year. And, and, you know, when I try to give whatever encouragement or insight I have, which is relatively limited, but then like, what I don't say is like, also I'm entering those same contests this year. So I, you know, I have like my book out at a bunch of contests right now and uh, we'll see. I'm 
just trying to hold it together here. I'm legitimately <laughs> about to cry. Oh, yeah. No, definitely nothing to cry about. Uh, but it is pretty frustrating. Uh, it, yeah. It, and it, I think, and this is like, I don't know. Again, like, I don't know how much of this I'll leave in. And I don't know how much of this, like, there is like a question I, I would sort of love to talk to you about at some point. And maybe we can just like have a phone call because I, I don't even know. But there is a thing about um, th like even in an even in a venue like this one, there is a an aura to success and a and yeah. a parallel aura to failure, particularly for Americans. That like it's a little bit like we don't have we definitely can like recognize the impulse behind tall poppy syndrome is that what you call it tall poppy tall poppy syndrome yeah, yeah. Mm. uh where somebody who's who becomes unusually successful gets sort of chopped back down to size by those around them or gets sort of you know that you turn on anybody who, who gets success and it's a fa famously a phenomenon in, in uh is it, it just in the arts in australia or is it all, all in any in, in any uh field in australia yeah no it can apply anywhere yeah so we definitely have like that's true for you know like th that doesn't not exist here but it is just a little bit different and there's much more of a an inverse like there's much more of a, a short poppy syndrome like the the more you're a tall poppy the more people will decide they actually do fine like one a guy i love who's a really delightful person love and his family's delightful and I, I enjoy him and I respect him. But like what became clear after like a few conversations was that he's extremely intelligent. He's very, very well educated. He's a retired professor. But all of his critical opinions in the arts are like he has no opinions that do not accord with, with the received verdict. Like, yeah. like when, you know, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Oh, it's the one that won the Nobel prize, right? Like which of these projects of mine do you think has more merit? Oh, the one more people have said approving things of. So, I, you know, I, I think like, that's just a very, that's so in the blood for Americans mm -hmm. that I think I am very cautious about how honest I am. Fuck uh, me. That yeah, is a you know. bullshit scenario. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, and I, like, I'm so ready to be done with the book. Like, I'm so ready well, not to, yeah not to, you know, like, not to have to go back in and feel like, all right, am I presenting this to somebody again? Am I, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah you want to get on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, I got, I like got, this. I got an, an email from this I wanted to ask you about just like not long before this uh, that I he he had some trouble with he had some like technical trouble that made it that makes some of his syntax hard to follow but but the gist of what I gathered in his in the in the first paragraph was that he was asking specifically about you and me what kind of poetry do you write and I, and I don't think he meant like characterize your poetry to me for me because I'm never going to read it but like I think it was because Jonathan and I were talking about we're sort of referring casually to schools and stripes and you know insider stuff and outsider stuff and, and he said like I think one thing he said that gave me pause was he said 
is it poetry world poetry? Which like uh, is sort of a nonsense question, but also does like I, I kind of recognize something in that. And I don't totally know how to answer him because I also think you and I don't don't quite write the same. Whatever the kind it is, it's not quite the same kind either. No, although I think that um, there's quite a bit of crossover. I, I yeah. read that that interview of yours with Jonathan, which was also great, and you talked about like the impulse for a lot of your poems being missing someone. And I, I really relate to that. Just this feeling of like, I have this thing that I need to say. This conversation's never going to happen. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think my, in terms of a school, um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm a descendant of like, if it's anyone, it would be Pam Brown, Ken Bolton, John Forbes, and then side like michael farrell like the generation of 68 is what they're called but that that strain of american poetry that i think you probably hear through me and then conclude that like it's all meant to be funny but mm. we are very much like the light relief crew like we're not we're not representative of most of what's going on so so generation of 68 and its descendants are that's the comic strain in australian poetry I mean, yeah, but I can't. I can't let you just call it the comic strain because that's okay. like <laughs> that's not, that's not, doesn't thoroughly characterize it. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, these are these are the people that make work that brings people joy. Like, um, <laughs> wait a minute. So then, what does the rest of it do? <laughs> the rest of it brings um, heartburn. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, guilt. Um, okay. bit of. Bit of worry, bit of shame, bit of I don't know. Thinking about thinking about the landscape. Um, there's a lot it's of like, serious stuff, and then there is the stuff that resists the serious. Right. And that is the stuff that I'm interested in. And the Generation '68 was a response to something, or was a? Yeah. Well, they were they were pushing back against like the Les Murrays of the world. And what I see, I don't even know how you would characterize Les Murray. Except that he's he's the the colossus. Yeah, um, the bush poet, you know, the like, the like, n- like man nature, in the landscape. Poet? Yeah, okay. yeah, some something like that. But I don't know. Is he is he Robert Frost? Is he Larkin? But yeah, essentially, they they were sick of reading Australian poetry that was trying to be. British poetry in Australia, and they mm. looked at the New York School, particularly at O'Hara and Ashbury, yeah. and that was Forbes's thing, and then brought that back, ran it through an Australian filter. This is like the worst possible. All my all your Australian listeners are just going to be like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> Screaming, like, yeah, your, your buds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's that's how you end up with the fun stuff. So yeah, yeah. My, my kind of in an offhand way said that I had come up with a theory of Australian po- of contemporary Australian poetry, uh, and and what's certainly more true is that this is a theory of a certain portion of Australia of contemporary Australian poetry, and I think of it as being maybe like a, like a certain kind of hipster poetry, a certain kind of like what I glean from the things you have said and the people you have had on from sick leave, Mm. which is a, which is like a hipster poetry night. That's like, that is very much a, a social event 
as well as being a venue for poets. Like it is a, it is, it's actually an, an event people go to and have fun at and like see people at and enjoy what's happening as well as the fact that they're going. Uh, and I think, so what, what occurred to me, I think was listening to the interview with, I can't remember the name of the guy. He was w one of the guys who runs it, but he had a poem called, I think it was called work and work work. Oh, Harry, Harry, Rick. Harry. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that was the poem of his that I quite liked, but what distinguished it from the others, uh, it was similar in tone in construction. It was snappy and conversational and a little cockeyed, uh, but it, it held together that it hmm. seemed from beginning to end all to be, you know, it wasn't one note, but it was sort of about one thing. And it seemed to, you know, like the later lines built on the earlier lines. And I felt at the end as if I had heard a poem about this experience or phenomenon or idea. And yeah. most of the poems he read, by contrast, felt like a series of one-liners. They felt like oh, poems that, yeah. but no, no, but I don't see, I don't say that in a, in a disparaging way. Like I, what, what I thought of was like, I don't know if you know Mitch Hedberg or Stephen Wright, great American stand-up comics, but they're brilliant i mean they're like geniuses in their way the line that william logan cited from stephen wright in his recent omnibus review was the early bird gets the worm but the second mouse gets the cheese so like they work sort of like they could construct these sort of perfect gems that were when that that was their their routine was they would have it was just an hour of perfect one-liners back to back to back to back lined up in, you know, and the order was chosen in a particular way and the delivery was important and all these things were important, but, but effectively they could, they were kind of separable. And the way that he even talked about his line, like he had a line about the, he had a certain line about it. Like often his poems would like what, what linked them was that all of the one-liners had one word in common where they all kind of played on a certain phrase, but they didn't seem to have a theme or a through line or a voice it was more like it was like a bunch of takes a bunch of like shots on goal and some of them were great and like the the performance or like what i imagined the way that you described them was that because you like often the comment would be like oh that line got a big reaction from the crowd and it, the what i imagined was that he was delivering these to a crowd of people and some of them really hit hard and some of them didn't but it sort of didn't all that much matter that other, like which other lines had appeared in the poem before it, it mattered more like which individual line snapped in the moment. So that that was what my that was my cheap and easy theory of because it did seem to it did seem to line up with a lot of the my experience with with some of the other people you'd interviewed, which was that they they had great little bits and snatches and moments, but that I did I often felt listening to their poems as if like what does this all amount to? What am I doing here? And then they would have a little funny, brilliant spark at some point in it that didn't seem necessarily to need the rest of the poem. I'm now going to like force <laughs> you to like on the spot defend everyone you've ever interviewed, but but that was my theory. Well, I mean, I can't let you just say that. Like, if that I liked him, case. I liked him. He drove me crazy, but I liked I liked him, Harry Reid. He said like he said some smart things about poetry as well. Um, yeah, as well yeah, as some, some deranged ones. <laughs> this way, you don't have you don't have to you know I mean, you're not responsible for for my my. Uh, no, but I mean, God, if if 
if the one-liner on its own were the point, I would have no interest in Harry's work, in Gareth Morgan, in Ursula Robinson Shaw, Melinda Bufton, Michael Farrell. Like, it's about there's a cumulative effect that these poems have and they are all going for something. I think the problem with just listening to them once on a podcast is that you just get you just get that effect and that is sort of what happens at readings as well like you just get that little laugh line um but then you know you look at it on the page and you realize how much else is going on so i think just a lot of it gets lost in in the auditory but that could yeah. be that could be too. but then but then that is part of what the the live performance is about right like if, if yeah. you need to really study it on the page and take time with it to get the whole value of it then like part of what's happening with the live performance is that it's like much of that pleasure is the pleasure of one-liners yes but if it were only that then it would be a, a waste of everybody's time i don't think so i think one-liners are great <laughs> sure but... I think like like a good, like <laughs> i know truly like stephen wright's a genius you know yeah but he's a comedian these right. are poets I mean, a really good stand-up comic like that, where every word is exactly right, where you can't have a, a word out or, you know, like the pauses, even the effectively the line breaks and something like, I don't think that's a lesser art form than like. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that. Poetry. No, yeah. no, no, definitely not saying that at all. Um, I'm just saying like they're going for different things. Yeah. It seems like in the performance, they might not be going for such different things. Because also like what contributes, I think, to my to my perhaps deluded theory is the is their affect their attitude like the like whether that's a an act or not like the way those guys talk about their own work only reinforces the impression that they're trying to write sort of throw away perfect one-liners yeah look i i can see how you would get there but what i've been trying to draw out in those conversations with each of them um is how fucking seriously they take this stuff. Like they care so much about poems and poetry and writing and building community and like um, totally, being when it comes service to, to the this community. Well, so the community part, I am I was like most impressed by, and like yeah. it's in a serious way. Like they they do amazing things with bringing people together. But they also yeah. read and they read their contemporaries, they care about their contemporaries, they review their contemporaries, like they care about poetry. And I think if if there's a if there's a pose, it's um maybe a slightly protective one, going back to the tall poppy thing, there's a sense in which if you take yourself too seriously as an Australian artist of any kind, you open yourself up to just the most withering criticism there is and so there is a bit of a need to like shrug and say who cares but everybody in that room knows that everybody really cares right so there's like like you don't want to be a tall poppy but you also don't want to be someone other people think thinks he's a tall poppy <laughs> like, <laughs> you just yeah. don't want to take yourself too seriously <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 uh all right all right uh, Come to sick leave, and, and then you can make up. Uh, I would believe your own me. Mind. There's no chance that I come to Melbourne and don't come to sick leave 
provided <laughs> that it's happening in a in a place and a time that's totally convenient to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I do. I have. I have a a pipe. I mean, it's probably it's a terrible idea in a number of different ways. But I kind of want. I haven't gone to the ALCW conference and been really impressed by a lot of the people I met there, and also been really bored by some of the stubbornly scholarly aspects of it. I, I, I wanted to find a way to conceive of a poetry podcasting panel, just as basically an excuse to, to bring a bunch of people, uh, and to who like both I would like to meet, but who also, uh, um, would just be more entertaining, <laughs> like stand at a panel and talk to a bunch of yeah. scholars well, talking about their papers. No one's read. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about coming back there next year. So if you book it, I will yeah. come. It, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, um, okay. Well, in that case, I, I mean, the problem is that it's going to be in, uh, one of the two major Texan cities. I can't ever remember. The, the, the different That'd be cities. great. I've never been to Texas. That sounds amazing. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. I think it's, I think it may be one of those, like there are a lot of mid large size American cities that are effectively homogeneous. Like they're all, they're all like uniformly Starbucks and Chipotle so that they all like, they all effectively could be the same city. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that's it's cool. one of those. It's either Dallas oh. or Houston. Uh, yeah. God, that, all of that's exotic to me, but um, even if that didn't happen, I am, I am pretty committed to the idea of, of, at least getting to New York next year. So well, shut. All right, uh, yeah. then. Yeah, we'll have to figure something out. Uh, um, oh yeah, I'm not coming all that way and not meeting you. Sorry about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. No, no, no. I would love that. That'd be great. Uh, yeah. We'll 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 come up with we'll come up with a plan one way or the other. Good. Um, Good. All right. We should talk about any of the things we've carefully planned to talk yep. about. Um, yep. Yep. I've got a lot of notes and a lot of post-its here, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Let's so the, it. the, um, and I do want to get back to some of your other, your other, um, I, we, yeah, you, you had a couple other things you wanted to, you wanted to get to, but, uh, we should talk about Horace because we have both, I've, I fell in love with Horace 15 years ago, um, in the middle of a big existential crisis and, and have, you know, taught classes based on his odes and have gone back to them over and over again and have I actually realized going through the odes so we each picked three that we particularly liked and wanted to talk about and I realized one of yours is one of the odes of his that I have I definitely cannot translate at all but I have done a kind of a close imitation of oh um, yes which yeah, one was that's that sort of a phone I mean it's like a faux translation sort of that is two six I think no, sorry, two sixteen. Yeah, because it's it's right after the so two fourteen <laughs> is postume postume. How the years go so, by, alas, how the years go by. Yeah, That's how uh, it starts. something Labanturani. God, I fucking totally lost that. Anyway, um, yeah. So I've done uh, two fourteen and two sixteen. I've done imitations of both of those, and they have some mm -hmm. similarities. But two sixteen is is as you put it, the one where he says, uh, "My poet, my poetry is only good for parties." Is that how you pa paraphrased it? Ah, well, that one. Was that one six? One, one six. What yeah. is two sixteen? Two sixteen is to Grosvenor. He's like, "Don't try to." Own oh yeah, yeah, so no, you're things. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. No, that's two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to Grosvenor. Yeah, no. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm thinking of one six. Yeah, it's two two fourteen is is the posthumous one, and then 
uh, one six is the one I, I did a little thing of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that uh, but, is yeah. that the poem of yours, Drinking Ode? Drinking Ode is my my cribbing of the posthumous one, and uh, Political Ode is my cribbing of one six. Oh. But yeah. So, uh, but let's talk about these in any order. So we 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 drew on a few different translations, chiefly on the David Ferry odes, and then on the Burton Raffle Essential Horse, which is his sort of selected odes of odes, satires, and epistles, um, which yeah. you put me onto. And I was most I was sort of what what convinced me that I needed to get it and read it was the version of four i think it was the version of four two that you read a little portion of on your podcast mm. i think or you and then you sent me a version of it um yeah. you sent me a copy of it yeah because uh, because i thought that was one that like fairy totally whiffed at and then raffle just just landed uh just just so yeah although my my fear here is that ryan or somebody like him will listen to this and be like Burton Raffle, that guy's a complete fraud. He can't even read Latin. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, he, he might like, be. He's, he's, a, he's a, I think he's a, a, a an experienced and, and respected translator of Old English, certainly. Um, okay. He might, I mean, he might be a complete fraud, but I also think, like, like Ryan certainly respects the, the parallel tradition of imitation. So, like, whether or not these are especially accurate, they, they capture and, and again i think like the thing that most translations totally fuck up and like sc particularly scholarly ones that are very true to notation and even syntax as well as sometimes form what they what they almost all what the only rare translations really get right is the effect where they really feel they land like poems it's like if you were yeah. translating jokes and none of them were funny that's most translations and what and burton raffle with some of these with some more than others he he gets an effect. He gets a you know the the poem works like a mousetrap in a way that that uh, that not all translations can do. There's um in, I have a, a copy actually Ryan gave me of uh, Baudelaire's Fleur de Mal, which is which is actually multiple versions of that book pieced together from lots of different translators, none of whom did all of the poems. Mm. So it's it, it you know and the, it, Jackson Matthews and somebody else did the. The edition and the comment in their introduction was that there are, you know, different poets have kind of operate on different wavelengths, and and sometimes across time and space you'll have some that that line up just right, but very. I mean, in no case do they line up on all of their poems. But you have yeah. somebody who happens to be just the right poet to translate just this particular poem, and I think David Ferry. I mean, where the great translator is someone like David Ferry who who lines up with Horace on so many of his odes. There's so many that he's got just the right temperament, mind, you know, lexicon for. And so you, the result is that this great, you get this great bulk of like amazing translations of poems, but then some of them, it just, it just doesn't quite go. And then you need somebody else to fill in those gaps. Uh, so mm -hmm. we did a selection of some different translators and uh, with the two of them being our kind of uh, our uh, core. Um, yeah, well, let me read yeah, let me read one six just so we can get get into it get some content yeah to talk about um i think yeah absolutely lands this one okay so one six two you're just gonna have to forgive all my pronunciation of the names in this um just saying that ahead of time to agrippa it takes a poet such as various 
capable of Homeric flight and range, to praise your deeds of courage and the events of victory, whether by ship or cavalry. I don't pretend to sing about such things as the stubborn, peevish anger of Achilles, or duplicitous Ulysses' wanderings, or the ferocious house of Atreus. Not for me. Self-knowledge and the muse of peaceful things prohibit me from dimming with my verses your glory and the glory of great Caesar. Who is it who is worthy to write the story of Mars in his adamantine armour, or of Meriones covered with Trojan dust, or Diomedes in battle against two gods? It falls to me to make up easygoing songs about such battlefields as parties, epic encounters between young men and women, Sometimes I write them because I've fallen in love. Sometimes I write them just for the fun of it. Yeah. And, and to Agrippa, <laughs> just, and this is, I assume, Agrippa, yeah. who's the same Agrippa who was a good friend of his, his patron, Mycenaeus. Yep, friend of Augustus. Mm -hmm. yeah. The thing that got me about this one is end of the second stanza. Not for me. <laughs> I just think that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I write them just for the fun of it. I mean, yeah, you couldn't get more Generation of sixty eight than that. Yeah, that yeah, that definitely that that feels very feels very much like Forbes. Yeah, uh, you had sent me before we got on a um, uh, death an ode, which is a poem that I'd forgotten about, but that is super Homeric. As you, or sorry, not Homeric, uh, Horatian, as you pointed out. Yeah, um, John Forbes, and yeah, but that that right there, I think, is very. Uh, feels very much like his his approach to poetry. So I, I there are things I quite like about this poem that drew, I mean, drew me to spend time with it myself. What do you? And I think it's all, like it is a it's a great example of one of the kinds of things Horace does really well. What do you What do you like about it? Well, we were talking before about not really me not really knowing what the hell my project is anymore. But if I were going to try to summarize it, that last stanza is what I would say. Like, all I can write about is essentially um, love and friendship on a very small personal scale, um, just for the fun of it or because I have fallen in love with someone. Uh, that's kind of all I want to do. I don't really want my poems to do any particular huge work in the world. Right. I don't really think anybody's can. And that's all I want, you know, the rest of it, not for me. Yeah, it's a, uh, it is a part of what I really like is that it's a poem of not, I think not entirely ironic humility. Like it yeah. starts out saying like, well, you know, you're, boy, it would, I can just imagine the kind of poem somebody could write about your, <laughs> your great work as a warrior. And man, I just, I can see it now with the way they'll make you look like a, like, a, you know, <laughs> an ancient Greek hero in your armor. It's just that that's not going to be me. Like, I don't, Essentially, I don't, he's you know. like, yeah, somebody else can do that. Um, he's just trying to avoid the project that he's been hired to do, which I can yeah. also relate to. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that's and that is something like you see in his poems over and over again. Is like the poem will be, and David Ferry does. I think sometimes it's really helpful, and sometimes less so. But he he titles his odes, and of course, the originals are, are not titled. But he, the titles of most of his are just two X, mm. two so and so, and most of the time, the person who's being addressed is sort of only tangentially. <laughs> 
part of the poem that he'll use that as an occasion either to begin the poem before spinning off in a different direction or he'll he'll sort of arrive there toward the end but it's you know it is even if he's not for the most part in most cases purely addressing this person it, i i appreciate that rhetorical shape that rhetorical like occasion or structure for the poem that makes it feel less I don't know, like like mushy and self indulgent than a lot of mm. a lot of. Well, I mean, he invented one of the. I mean, like so much of contemporary lyric poetry is is of his lineage, but it a lot of it lacks that like ostensible formality that I think can be so helpful when what you're really doing is just getting some feelings out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, have an occasion. Yeah, um, but David Ferry also talks in the introduction about what he calls the volatility of tone, which mm. I think happens when he does that swerve. He starts out by being like, "Listen, mate, I'm here to write about your great successes, and uh, you've been doing really well. It's fantastic." Hey, P.S. Um, I'm really crushing on this person over here just quietly. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, or or I mean, sometimes he'll say things like, "Hey, you know that servant girl of yours? Uh, keep bringing her around. I promise I'm going to sleep with her." Like, yeah, it's, or, no, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, there's one of yours, I think, that has has a servant girl who's a bit problematic. Um. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Uh, that is, yeah. I mean, that that is like I was talking to my dad because Josie's reading all these uh, classic children's books, some of which have. <laughs> classic well, cultural and political problems embedded in them. And, and I was just like, I, I was remembering from my own, because I think my, my dad was sort of like reflexively saying like, oh, just because C.S. Lewis wrote some characters who might seem racist doesn't mean he's bad and we should ignore him. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not ignoring him. I'm not, like she's reading his books. But like, I remember being a kid and reading, reading like the Hardy Boys and there's like some just appalling caricature of a Chinese character. And I remember at the time thinking like, oh, this is because it's an old book. And like, this is one of the weird things they did in old books where they just like were, were dumb and racist or used Jew as a verb, uh, you know? And like, you know, I, I think you, you can't, if you, it feels odd saying this because I feel like this is almost necessary to read any kind of poetry, but like you certainly have to come to this understanding that he's writing in a different time and place. And like, there's a lot of what happened in that time and place that we think is awful. Just like when, when, you know, reading Seneca, Seneca says like, maybe it's not so great to watch men be torn, <laughs> torn to pieces by wild beasts in the, in the Colosseum. Like that's, that might not be a good way to spend your lunch break. You know, you know, we have to, yeah. Remember, remember yeah. where he's writing from. But one of the things is that when he, when he's writing about almost anyone, particularly when like he, when he's expressing lust, um, yeah. he's so on the hook. And another thing that I really liked that Ferry said um, in an interview on None Other Than Literary Matters is that he he's like lamenting the loss of sexual power a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even when he's a relatively young guy, the people he's interested in are younger still and he knows that he's kind of, not a great prospect. Past it. Yeah. He's past it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he, he is never, uh, he never 
he never comes off as the hero. Like he he yeah. always is himself part of the butt of the joke. Yeah. Uh, which just seems like yeah, it just seems like I don't know how obvious a move that was before him, but it seems like he maybe that's one of his precedents because it just seems so um so crucial like it would be yeah i mean he's not at all a philosopher but like as with as with like the best philosophers if they weren't also accusing themselves it would be unbearable yeah exactly i I wonder a little bit about the the end of this poem and it's again like we i you know i i don't have latin and i don't know about you but like i'm mostly reading these as a series of basically english poems some of which are more similar to other you know each other's uh, to one another than than others but i like the last two lines sometimes sometimes i write them because i fall in love sometimes i write them just for the fun of it they're so colloquial and they're so familiar and as you said like that that last line could come straight out of a john forbes poem but I also like, I guess like as a last line, it feels to me like part of what bothered me about this translation is that it, it just feels like it doesn't snap shut in the Yeatsian way. Like it doesn't have the, it doesn't have enough tension to it. And maybe it's, maybe it's that it is so much a received construction or it's just, it's, or that it's like, it's very nonspecific. Uh, I don't know what it is, but like I, I felt slightly let down by the just the tension of that that last line. Yeah, I I didn't at all, but I think that's because of the type of poetry that I'm so comfortable with that will just wander off. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you get no sense of finality or conclusion or snapping shut. It's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that that feels really comfortable to me. That seems right. And and I think that probably is is not like I the, the Tom Stoppard line about dialogue is he says dialogue should sound just like everyday speech, except that the most important part always comes last. Mm. Uh, he's, he's sort of keeping people on the hook until the end of every line so that they keep listening to the end. Whereas in normal life, we'll often start with the most important thing and then kind of taper off. As we, as our, as the structure of our thoughts loses, you know, loses its its architecture. Imagine if it went. Sometimes I write them just for the fun of it. Sometimes I write them because I've fallen in love. Like fuck that. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I, want that. <laughs> I mean that that becomes a turn in the poem. Yes. Yeah. Like, and and there maybe maybe so there important. would be a way to make that turn and have it be effective, but that would not be the way. Like you're you're right that it's. It needs to be. It needs to be dismissive, uh, and that may, maybe maybe that's just it. And of course, like I don't know exactly. I think it's not a. I looked it up. I don't think it's like a terribly inaccurate translation. Non preter solitum lewis. Oh yeah, not beyond the ordinary light. I'm assuming light meaning you know light lightness, like light verse, just sort of like ordinary fun. I, I'm assuming it means. Yeah, I don't know, uh, but I, I think I think you're probably right that your I tend to want or expect poems to just like when I pick up a new collection of poetry, I, I almost always will flip to the end first. I expect them to put a killer last and I expect the last line to not necessarily sum up the poem, but, but twist the dagger. Mm. And in your case, not in your case, but like in the case of this sort of the, the post generation of 68 poetry, the poetry that I 
perhaps unfairly characterized as being one-liner poetry. There's part of the premise of that kind of poetry is we're not taking it too seriously. And so, and so part of that might be that you just sort of wander off in the last line or you just sort of throw it away because you don't, you're not, uh, you're, you're not trying to presume so much as to bring everything down with a crunch at the very end. Mm. Can I read that Forbes poem, Death and Ode, just so that people yeah, have please, a sense of... please. Because I, I think that's one where he actually has a... He, he saves up a killer for the end. He does, actually. He does. I should read Europe Endless if you want the wandering off. <laughs> uh, but I feel like we need to read the Horatian one. Yeah. And a brief for people who haven't heard your uh, your fantastic two-part John Forbes episode. Uh, well, I'll put a link and do go listen to her fantastic two-part John Forbes episode, but a quick line on who he is. Um, thank you. Uh, John Forbes was... The Australian Bukowski. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Okay, so he was uh he was born in 1945 he lived between Sydney and Melbourne he had uh, an addiction to cough medicine he wrote some of the best poetry that this country's ever produced and I had a really big problem with him until I um actually properly sat down and read him and now I am completely in love with him and this is his poem Death and Ode. Death, you're more successful than America. Even if we don't choose to join you, we do. I've just become aware of this conscription where no one's marble doesn't come up. No use carving your name on a tree, exchanging vows or not treading on the cracks for luck, where there's no statistical anomalies at all, and you know not the day nor the hour, or even if you do, Timor Mortis, about me. No doubt we'd think this in a plunging jet, and the black box recorder would note each individual unavailing scream. But what gets me is how compulsory it is. He never was a joiner, they wrote on his tomb. At least binging becomes heroic, and I can see why the Victorians so loved drawn-out deathbed scenes. Huddled before our beautiful century, they knew what first night nerves were all about. Um, I like how he is, as he often does, making his drinking problems kind of romantic. <laughs> so he, at least binging yeah. becomes heroic. It's like, ah, I guess if I'm going to die, then I might as well do it <laughs> that way. Like Horace, he was writing his own myth while he was alive, very consciously. Yeah, he was. And that, that poem, I think, I hear in it, uh, I mean, both Horace as well as a kind of a response to uh, both uh, Dunn's Death Be Not Proud and uh, Larkin's Obad. Mm. But yeah, I think, I think it's quite, quite taut. And I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of misstep in there. And a lot of it is uh, pentameters. I, pentameter. I think I know that line. My favorite line is the, I've just become aware of this conscription. Yeah. Oh fuck! I didn't see that. That's uh, great. A lot of it is. I know. The, I think the last line's tetrameter, but it's yeah. It's it's very it, out of context. They're like, oh, that's that doesn't sound Australian at all. I mean, it, you know, obviously he's 
he's determining what sounds Australian. I kind of wish John Forbes were Ern Malley. Like, like I don't want him to be any different than he is, but like Ern Malley is so much the like the raven hulking on your palace Athena. And I can't like like I wanna I wanna like dislodge that raven and replace it with the with the one-legged seagull that is John Forbes. <laughs> oh, he's there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like every single poem in this book, I got this for my birthday and I didn't think I was going to get it. And then when I got it, I once again was close to tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be- but, be- beautiful uh, edition. That's one that I, I got in college and say, and I've like held on to. It's, who who yeah. did that one? Salt, is that the Salt? Salt is one of your publishers. Randall and Schlesinger. Oh, yeah, Randall and Schlesinger. Um, yeah. Yeah, which reminds me actually, Aiden, the um, Forbes's biographer, wants to know who your teacher was who liked John Forbes so much. Brian Henry. Okay. Yeah. I you uh, said that. Not a fan of mine <laughs> not, not like me but uh, i did learn I, did, I learned a lot from him uh you know but some of it didn't didn't take till later but i did learn a lot from him and uh-huh. he was best friends with andrew zawaki and they uh-huh. they founded verse together i believe or they may have founded the verse press and then they now he works at wave uh and and Zawaki was the one I mentioned in my nonsense essay who said that he he sort of extracted all the meaning from his first collection deliberately so that it would be harder to understand. That sounds right. Why don't you read one now? Yeah. Um, one of mine I picked was two poems earlier from the, than that. This is So Horace did four books of odes, uh, and they're all fairly short. I mean, the, the complete collection of them, even on Foss with the, with the Latin and the English and fairies translation of all four books is just about 300 pages um so they're they're quite it's quite spare but but boy out of four very slender books there's just so many uh immortal poems yeah uh this is one four the, uh, the first book the fourth poem fairy calls this two cestius which is the friend he's addressing and typically what that ends up meaning and i think this is true in the original yeah it's only in the uh penultimate stanza that he mentions cestius he just says oh obeate cesti uh but, but he uh, i don't think his name even appears in uh fairy's translation to cestius now the hard winter is breaking up with the welcome coming of spring and the spring winds some fishermen under a sky that looks changed are hauling their caulked boats down to the water in the winter stables the cattle are restless So is the farmer sitting in front of his fire. They want to be out of doors in field or pasture. The frost is gone from the meadow grass in the early mornings. Maybe somewhere the nymphs and graces are dancing. Under the moon, the goddess Venus and her dancers. Somewhere far in the depth of a cloudless sky, Vulcan is getting ready the storms of the coming summer. Now is the time to garland your shining hair with myrtle or with the flowers the free giving earth has given. Now is the right time to offer the kid or lamb in sacrifice to Faunus in the firelit shadowy grove. Revenant white-faced death is walking, not knowing whether he's going to knock at a rich man's door or a poor man's. Oh, good-looking fortunate Cestius, Don't put your hope in the future. The night 
is falling. The shades are gathering around. The walls of Pluto's shadowy house are closing you in. There, who will be lord of the feast? What will it matter? What will it matter there, whether you fell in love with Lycidas, this or that girl with him, or he with her? <laughs> oh, good-looking, fortunate Cestius. Yeah, I want more. I want. I want more of that. I want to read that in more poems. You know, like, it may, yeah. like every time I read Horace, I think, like, why don't I write more poems to my friends? You know, but you just do, like directly. Right? I mean, I, well, and I do. Like a lot of my poems are, are basically poems I wrote after rereading Horace and thought, like, oh yeah, I want to write a poem to Brendan. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can also hear your poem Anku in this one as well. The death walking, not knowing oh, which story's going to knock out. Yeah, I love though in poems like like when he takes this tone of like just stop worrying, just stop worrying. You have to assume that he is giving that advice to himself as well. Yeah, and, yeah, no, yeah. I, I mean, yes, I think I think so. This is one where, and it's it's funny, like even looking at the line, the frost has gone from the meadow grass in the early mornings. The nymphs and graces are dancing. There's, you know, this poem has like shares like it's like what you read about like a like chimp DNA versus human DNA, and like even one human versus another, where like. There's so much that's shared that it's almost impossible to identify the tiny bit that's different. Um, this poem is in so many ways identical to another one of the poems I wanted to read, which is four or seven, that like even in a translation by a different poet, they're like some of those phrases appear almost verbatim. This is, I think part of what I particularly like about this one is that it is, although Cestius's name doesn't even appear in this translation, and it appears only once in the original. It does feel, at least in in Fairy's version, as if he is he's taking his long winding path not away from concern for his friend or concern for the person he's supposed to be writing about, but but he's sort of winding his way back there. That like basically, that you could paraphrase this poem as everyday advice as saying like there are a lot of fish in the sea. Mm. Yeah, like don't forget <laughs> yeah, yeah, her, yeah. forget about her, or forget about him. Uh, but it, he he winds up rather than winding off. Yeah, you know, this is the opposite yeah. structure to the one that we just yeah. looked at. Yeah, but he 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 brings in the whole world, and then and he the way fairy structures this code. So um, an ode, as I think it was um, Pindar who who kind of first established the ode as a particular mode of writing, and then and that was a three part. A big, giant, wild three-part poem that was written for dance and had all these conventions to it. And then the Horatian Ode has established sort of a lot of how we end up talking about the Ode today. Keats was then was then probably the next like great, great originator of a of a, a mode of ode writing. But but part of what characterizes an, an ode in the Horatian tradition is that it's written in regular stanzas, and that's all of these poems are written in. Lots of them are written in quatrains, but they're, you know, all of them, the stanzas all are, are kind of metrically equivalent. And and this is one, interestingly, where, where Fairy's translation is broken into two, two big uneven chunks that are proportionally sort of like a, like a slightly lops, like a slightly more than, more than usually lopsided sonnet. Um, and he, that break comes with death. We watch this, you know, the, the, the spring is broke breaking through We're you know, we're, we're shaking off winter. Look at all the wonderful life, you know, life and world all around us. And then 
the break comes with Revenant Whiteface Death is walking. Mm. There's all of this beauty in the world, and it's all going to end. And that's then when he turns to his to his friend. And, and, and but but what I love about the poem is that you you get at that point you realize he's been talking about his friend the whole time. Yeah, and he's just bringing it back down to him so that he can finally offer this comfort when it's been laden with all of these images that came before it. So that it's not if he started a poem by saying. What will it matter whether you fell in love with Lycidas when you're dead? You'd say like, well, it's a little insensitive. Certainly not very convincing. Doesn't like, but he, <laughs> but he, he front loads it with all of this, this wonderful description, and then this sort of threat. It's all here for you now, and it won't be forever. And then he, and then he, you know, he offers that that little bit of advice or or kind of rhetorical consolation. What will it matter? What will it matter there? Boy, I'm such a sucker for a repetition like that. What will it matter? What will it matter? Which I think, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I hear there the, um, the line that just kills me every time I read it in those winter Sundays. You know, what did I know? What did I know? Actually, did, does he repeat that twice? Does he repeat it or does he not repeat it? Because I always imagine him as repeating it. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Let me look it up I'm right now because sure. otherwise I'm going to go fucking insane. Um, so Robert, <laughs> Robert Hayden's wonderful poem, Those Winter Sundays, uh, which is not about at, at all the same thing. Typically, the one poem people include from, yes, he does, from, uh, from Robert Hayden, but uh, he's written a lot of other really good ones. Yeah, the end of that poem is, what did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And it is, and it, like, the, he, the, the register with austere and lonely offices, as well as the, that kind of repetition and that apostrophic rhetorical question, feels like a, he's slipping back to something like Horace. So he, I think, you know, Hayden may have been nodding at Horace, and, and Horace maybe have been nodding back at him. Or sorry, and Fairy may have been nodding back at him with his translation. Mm-hmm. What will it matter? What will it matter there? Whether you fell in love with Lycidas, this or that girl with him, or he with her. Because what he doesn't say is, uh, you're not, you're, you're better than him. He doesn't no. say, he doesn't say, oh, he doesn't know what he's missing. You know, he just says, well, or yeah. he, he really likes you. He's just too shy to show it. Right. Yeah. Um, They're just jealous of you. No. Yeah. Like, he yeah. doesn't it's love like, you at all. Nah. He loves someone else. <laughs> it's just that you're, you're going to die. And so will he. And it's spring. And it's spring. That was this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you have not already checked out Poetry Says, Alice's podcast, then please do so. Uh, you can reach me, as always, at sleericketts at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.